kind of show you. Now, chapter 13 was pretty dismal, wasn't it? You got the, the earth dwellers are worshiping the beast. Uh, he, he has forced the whole world to take his mark. And the false prophet is causing all the people to worship the beast because of the miracles that he's performing. And so now, uh, it's like God's given us a little oasis in this uh, spiritual desert. And we're going to see some scenes of hope. And it's very encouraging. So Adam, in Revelation 14, if you will, read the first five verses. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000. Sorry. And having his father's name written on his foreheads, and I heard a voice from heaven like a voice of many waters, and like a voice of loud thunder. And I heard a sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were the redeemed who, from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and in their mouth were found no deceit, for they or without faith before the throne of God. All right, thank you. So the first thing he sees is uh, the Lamb on Mount Zion. Now there's some debate as to whether this is a heavenly Mount Zion or earthly Mount Zion. And I'm going to say that the majority of commentators agree that this is earthly Mount Zion. And uh, it's important. Zion is synonymous with victory. If you read in the... Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, you'll, you'll find out that uh, Mount Zion is synonymous with, uh, with the Messiah, with the city of David. This scene is what we call a proleptic scene. Does anybody know what the word proleptic means? Uh, that's a rhetorical question, because if you don't, the definition is up on the screen here. Uh, you learned a new word today, if you didn't know it already. A proleptic scene, uh, defined as the describing of an event... As taking place before it could have done so, the treating of a future event as if it had already happened. So it's a certainty. So even though we've still got the seven bold judgments that are going to come forth from, from the, the, the angels, going to pour out the wrath of God, but, but even before God's wrath is finished, victory is certain. Praise God. We're on the winning side. Okay, I've read to the end of the book, and I know that the Lamb is victorious. And if I'm in Him, that I share in the victory. Amen? Yeah. All right. Now, the earth dwellers, they're, they're worshiping the beast. And it looks like, from the earth's perspective, it looks like we're done for. It looks like the devil has won. But what God does here to John is He peels back the curtain. And He says, John, don't be discouraged. Believer, don't lose heart. Things may look dim... But we win. we win. And that's important for you to remember. We have to keep an, an eternal perspective on things. Because sometimes in your life, let's be honest, doesn't it feel like the devil's getting the upper hand? Yeah. Look at our country. Sometimes it feels like the devil's getting the upper hand if you read the news. But I would encourage you to get out of the news and get in God's Word and understand that God's in control of everything that happens in this world. He's got your life in the palm of His hand. We see the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now the dragon is on the seashore. 
false prophet is standing before him doing his miracles. But uh, the dragon's on the sand and the, uh, the beast is coming out of the sea. But Christ is firmly planted on Mount Zion. Hallelujah. Adam, would you read that off of the, the, uh, the board there? Psalm, this comes out of Psalm 2. I would encourage you for the, over the next little while to memorize Psalm 2. Because it's very prominent, a prominent theme in this particular uh, section of Scripture. Is that microphone work? I gave you a dead microphone. Some just don't have any heat on. That yellow is dead. Well, there's a white, white one on my. There's a purple one up here to see if it works. I think it does because I'm jiggling the handle on this. Making noise. I'll load it. Yeah. I guess that's going to fall apart. Everybody give God a praise. Hallelujah. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my kingdom upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree, the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. For the Lord hath chosen Zion, he hath desired it for his own habitation. Praise God. That last one was out of Psalm 132. I would encourage you to do a study. Look in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, and every time that Mount Zion is mentioned, and it's synonymous with victory. The first time we find Mount Zion uh, is 2 Samuel chapter 5. And in 2 Samuel chapter 5, the Jebusites are there in Jerusalem. They're, they're the, uh, the, the inhabitants of the land. And King David comes to town. And uh, the ruler of the Jebusites said, Even the blind and the lame will be enough to drive you out, David. And David said, We'll see about that. And David whooped up on them. I'm giving that the Henry Haney version there. David whipped them. And he, he renamed the place the city of David. Praise God. So Mount Zion is the city of David. It's a, it has very uh, strong messianic overtones. Now, we saw 144,000 with a lamb. And I made mention of this last week. We first saw these guys in chapter 7, didn't we? And how many of them were sealed in chapter 7? 144,000, right? And so we see them all the way to the end. Now, there's some commentators that believe that these guys survived the tribulation period. I don't think that interpretation is, uh, is accurate uh, because as we'll see in this chapter, being martyred for Jesus is not seen as being defeated. It's, being, it's seen as a victory. And Christ himself died, amen, and rose again. So, um, they're, but they're all preserved. And do you know, you and I, we, we, uh, we're going to be preserved too. It says that they have the Father's name written on their foreheads. Now, in the previous chapter, the beast has identified his group, right? He's a counterfeiter. And he's, he's, he's identified him with his mark. But God has identified us with his mark. And that's true not only of the 144,000, but that's true of you and I. Okay? I want to prove that to you. We're, this is not in the PowerPoint, but let's, let's do it. we got time to do it. And we got a microphone that works now. So let's go to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. I'll tell you, before you go there, go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians 1. 
Or as they say across the pond, 2 Corinthians. Well, they don't say it with a southern accent. They say 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. Would you read that out? Now he who establishes us with you in Christ has now anointed us as God. He also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Alright. So Christ, God has sealed us just like the 144,000. Go with me to Ephesians now. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's go east. <laughs> Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14, would you read that down? Now you know why Mark passed that microphone over to you. 13 and 14. In him you are also trusted, after you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. Now go to chapter 4. Same, same book. Ephesians 4. And read verse 30 if you will. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. By whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Hallelujah. Just like the 144,000. When God seals us, we are secure. We are sealed until the day of redemption. Praise God. Hallelujah. That means if I'm saved, I'm going to make it. If I'm really saved, I'm going to make it. So I don't care what you got going on today, what kind of trouble you got. Ultimately, you're going to have a brand new glorified body with no problems. Hallelujah. All right. These 144,000, the Bible says that they sing a song. And it says that nobody can learn that song except them. You're going to learn that music is really important to God if you haven't figured it out already. Music is important to God. And you know what? The 144,000, they've got their song, but God's got your song that He's writing to you. And nobody can sing your song but you. I can't learn their song, but they can't learn mine either. I can't learn yours. The things that, are, that you're going through in your life, you may think that nobody understands. Nobody knows what I'm going Nobody knows the troubles that I've seen. And I feel God in here this morning. I know we've had some technical difficulties with me. It's not Sam's fault. It's my fault because I'm grabbing these dead microphones. But uh, I feel the Lord in this place. He wants to encourage us. You know? This is not just for the pie in the sky. This is not just for the future. This is stuff we can lean on now. Now the scripture says, we're back in Revelation 14, or at least we're supposed to be, I'm not, but you are, I'm sure. Revelation 14, it says that, uh, that these are those, verse 4, who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now I hate to break it to you, but if we take this literally, that means that the 144,000 are males only. Otherwise there's no need to say they're not defiled with women, right? 
Now, some say, well, all believers are virgins. Well, that's true, but there's something unique about these guys, and that's what the text is stressing. Now, why would these guys need to be uh, unmarried males? Well, think about the time period that they're living in. It's going to be the most disastrous of all, of all time periods. And think about how difficult it would be for their ministry. They have a unique ministry. If they had the encumbrances of a family, you know, they had a wife and kids. And so think of these guys as like 144,000 Apostle Pauls, because I think that's what they'll be. And I, and I was thinking about this the other day. This is not my outline. And I was thinking, you know, how in the world are they going to know that they're one of the 144,000? You know what I mean? How are they going to know? And here's, here's a thought that I had. From our study of the two witnesses, I believe that Moses and Elijah will return prior to the, uh, to the tribulation starting. And wouldn't it be appropriate for those two guys to have a list and to know exactly who they are? And this is just Henry's opinion, okay? You know, when I say that, you can take it with a grain of salt. I believe the two witnesses will train the 144,000. Because they're not going to have time to go to seminary, right? At least I don't think they will. <laughs> All right. So if a woman shows up on your door and says she's one of the 144,000, well, point them here, okay? Point them here. All right. It also says... That they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. I wish I could say that about me. But they follow Him everywhere. They're, they're true disciples. They are redeemed. And the Bible says they're the first fruits. So they're the first Jewish believers, I believe, using this concept of the harvest. No guile is found in their mouths. You know, we get in a lot of trouble with our tongues, don't we? Oh dear. Let me preach for a minute. We're going to take this communion... Lord, supper here in a minute. And this morning I woke up and I thought, oh God, I just want you to forgive me of every sin, you know. And, I, and they sang about it this morning. Lord, search me and see if there's any wicked way in me. And some things are so obvious to me, I don't need a detective. I don't need a decoder ring. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Some things you know that you do that you shouldn't do, right? We've all got areas of weakness. But there's one thing that always escapes me, and God reminded me of it this morning. And he says, don't forget about your tongue. Don't forget about your tongue. I'm not just talking about lying. I'm not just talking about cussing. I'm talking about murmuring and complaining and gossiping and saying things that are not wholesome. Using my tongue as anything but an instrument of blessing. You know, our words can destroy or they can build up. And I believe God wants our words to build up other people, to encourage them, and to praise God. Amen? All right. Also, it says they're faultless before the throne of God. Now, this doesn't mean that they're sinless, right? Because we see earlier that they're redeemed, which means that they needed a Savior, right? But it does say they're faultless. Go with me to the book of Jude. It's right before Revelation. They're faultless before His presence. You say, well, that's great. That's great for them, but I'm not one of the 144,000, so what about me? Well, Jude's going to answer that for us. He's going to answer that. Adam, would you read Jude? It's only one chapter, verses 24 and 25. 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with the exceeding joy. <clears throat> to our God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That means I don't have to be afraid to die. That's the greatest fear man has, right? Fear of death. Some say public speaking, but really the fear of death. But I don't have to be afraid. A lot of people think, well, what if I die and I don't have everything exactly perfect in my life? Well, let me just break it to you. Not one person has ever died that was 100% perfect in every way. Except for Jesus. So how am I going to be faultless before His presence? Well, it's because when God's going to look at me, He's not going to see me in my, my self-righteousness. He's going to see me clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it is the blood of the Lamb that makes me faultless. It's the blood of the Lamb that gives me the privilege and the opportunity to go before His throne and to pray and to seek His face and to go into the Holy of Holies. The Bible says you and I have access to the Holy of Holies. Oh, dear man. Because of the blood of Jesus. My mom's here. Glad to see mom and dad. And I remember my mom telling me growing up that my granddaddy was terrified to take communion. Because he thought you had to be perfect. And he knew he was. And he was terrified. Because, you know, the Bible talks about not eating uh, in, a, in an unworthy manner. And he felt so unworthy. But if he could only understood. Now he was saying. But if he could only understood that... The only thing that makes us worthy to partake of that cup is the blood of Jesus. So if you're here this morning, we're going to commemorate this. Praise God. I just feel the Holy Spirit in here this morning. I'm so thankful uh, that we can take communion today and come to the Lord's table and be in one heart and one mind and one accord. You know, we can celebrate the fact that you and I are forgiven. And it's 100% because of the bread which represents the broken body of Jesus. And that fruit of the vine which represents the blood. And because of that, you and I have fellowship with him and with each other. Hallelujah. All right, back to Revelation 14. And I've got to pick up some steam here, and I promise I'm going to. If y'all figured me out yet, I'm like, a, I'm like an old diesel engine. I start out cold, and then I start building up steam, and then I won't shut up. And you're like, it's time to go home. By the time I get warmed up. But Revelation 14. We're going to see some angels that are going to make some proclamations. Okay. So Adam, would you read verses 6 and 7? Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him. For the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who has made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. So God's about to pour out these final bowls of wrath. And they're going to be awful. It's going to be worse than anything the world has ever seen. But before God does this, he says one last altar call. God loves people. Even in their rebellion, even in their stubbornness, he still loves people. And he's still giving them opportunities to repent. Now what we're going to see is they're not going to take advantage of it, unfortunately. But we see the heart of God here. And it's the everlasting gospel. Some say it's a different gospel, but that defeats the point of it being everlasting, right? <laughs> that means it's unchanging. You say, well, how can it be the everlasting gospel? Because in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve heard the gospel. 
devil heard the gospel. God said, the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. That's the gospel. Abraham heard the gospel. God told him, said, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Through your seed, your offspring, through the Messiah. It, it took various shapes throughout the years, but it's always been the gospel. The good news is that God's going to save humanity through His Son, Jesus Christ. We read in the Bible that the Lamb of God was slain from the foundation of the world. It's an everlasting gospel. It's going out into all the world. Now, I've told you before, Matthew 24, 14. Let's, let's turn there. Matthew 20. It's all about discourse. And we love to quote it at missions conferences, and we should, because we need to encourage uh, people to miss. Missions is important. Missions is important. Local missions is important. State missions is important. National missions is important. And international missions is important. Because Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every created person. I didn't get any amens on that, and I'm ashamed of that here at Deep Springs. <laughs> Missions is important. Oh, thank you. I had to goad you into it, but I, but I got it. Um, but we're not going to finish the job. Matter of fact, some might argue that the church is not doing a great job of it at all. But um, Adam, would you read Matthew 24, 14? And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and the end will come. Okay. <clears throat> so the church does her job. The two witnesses do their job. The 144,000 do their job. But then God employs an angel. Can you imagine? An angel flying through heaven. Preaching the gospel. That's how much God loves people. These are the extremes to which he goes. And notice this gospel back in Revelation 14. It emphasizes that the judgment is at hand. Time is running out. And it's really emphasizing God's role as a creator. You need to understand... And if you get this wrong, everything else won't make sense either, you see. That's why Christianity and evolution are incompatible. They're incompatible. And I know every time you turn on the TV, it talks about billions of years ago that this happened and that happened. But my Bible says that in the beginning God created heavens and the earth. And even in the Ten Commandments, okay, people say, well, was it a literal seven-day creation? Go to the Ten Commandments. You don't have to do it right now. But when you get to that fourth command, which is what? Remember the, the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. God says the reason you should do that is because in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and he rested on the seventh. So our week that we celebrate or observe is modeled after God's creation week, which is seven literal days. Okay. Now the second angel is going to proclaim the doom of Babylon. Adam, would you read Revelation 14, 8? Then another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the great city, because she has made all the nations drink of her wine, 
and the wrath for fornication. Thank you. So twice we are told that it's fallen, fallen, fallen. Now in Genesis 41, Joseph uh, is interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. He's got the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. And in, in Genesis 41, 32, these words are said, And for that the dream was doubled unto Pharaoh twice, is because this thing is established by God, and he will do what? Shortly bring it to pass. Babylon is getting ready to fall within three and a half years in, in this time frame. Now, I mentioned this earlier. I'll mention it again. I believe that this is the literal city of Babylon rebuilt. And I know there's a lot of people that say, well, you know, look at... Uh, Babylon is where modern Iraq is, southern Iraq. Okay. Now, is that a world metropolis right now? It's not, is it? Not really. And so a lot of commentators will say, well, uh, looks like Iraq's not, it's done for. So this can't be a literal prophecy. It must mean Rome. That's what most of the commentators say. The only problem is, it doesn't say Rome, does it? It says Babylon. Now, twice um, in the narratives, we find that the, the area of the Euphrates River is mentioned. There's activities going on in the Euphrates River. Now, most of the time, when the Bible mentions a location, it, it's, it literally means that location. So when God says Ephesus, he doesn't mean Rome, he means Ephesus. When God says Sardis, he means Sardis. When he says Jerusalem, he means Jerusalem. So why is it when we get to Babylon, we say, oh, God, you mean Rome there, you don't really mean Babylon. It's because we've been conditioned that way. You would not get that from a natural reading of the text. Now, go with me to um, um, Revelation 11. Whenever God wants us to understand something symbolically, He tells us. And He, he, he gives us the instructions. Revelation 11, uh, Adam, would you read verse 8? And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in ancient, where also our Lord was crucified. Okay? So it's identified as Sodom, which represents immorality, Egypt, which is idolatry and bondage. But then he goes on to say, he's not talking about Egypt. He's not talking about Sodom. He's talking about the place where Jesus was crucified. And that clues us in that he's really talking about what? Jerusalem. Right? So when God intends us to say one thing means something else, he gives us the clue. We don't have the license to say, okay, God, you said Babylon, but I think that means wrong. Okay? Now, if you know your Bible, then you know that false religion started in Babylon by a guy named Nimrod. And I'm going to get into all the mythology, and, and I probably drove Lori crazy. All weekend, she'll tell you. Every waking hour this weekend, I've been studying about uh, Babylon. And I am convinced. I am convinced that there will be a rebuilt Babylon. And where this thing all started, where false religion started, it's going to end. That's the reason where the Garden of Eden was. And uh, the plain of Shinar. And this is where it's going to come to a, uh, to a head, I do believe. So Babylon means Babylon. And it says that they've made all nations drink of the wine of her fornication. Fornication is uh, often synonymous with idolatry okay, and drunkenness. All right, Revelation 14. 
Would you read Adam verses 9 through 11? Revelation 14, 9 through 11. Then a third angel followed him, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels into the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of the torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Would you read verse 12 too? Here, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of the God and faith of Jesus. All right. Thank you. So the ones who are going to take this mark, they're going to drink of God's wrath. The word here is thumas. The normal word for wrath is orge. But thumas speaks of passion, furious anger, um, without mixture. What a dreadful thought. Can you imagine they're going to be tormented in the presence of the angels of the Lamb. Now, the Bible says here, their torment is eternal. Just like salvation is eternal for those who are saved, torment is eternal for those who are lost. And the Bible says that they have no rest day or night. Now, in a minute, we're going to read where the ones who got the victory over their beast, they do have rest. They rest from their labors. But these guys are going to have no rest. Can you imagine having no rest forever? Can you imagine? Think of how tired you, you might be. Some of you may be exhausted right now. I may be mentally exhausted, physically exhausted. Imagine being physically and mentally exhausted for all of eternity. Never having any refreshment. Never any encouragement. Never any, never any respite. Can you imagine? That would be horrible, wouldn't it? You say, well, Henry, why are you talking like this? Well, look what the Holy Spirit says here. He says in verse um, 12, he said, here is the patience of the saints. This is how you endure. Is, is you understand that if you take that mark, you're doomed. So what I, the point I'm making here is that, that the angel's warning here is a motivation to escape. I understand that I can't scare people out of hell. I can't do it. If you won't respond to the grace of God, you won't respond to hell either. But, but nevertheless, that's part of the message. Is that if you take the mark of the beast, you're going to be tormented for eternity. And let me say this. You may not live in this time period. But if you reject Jesus Christ, that's your fate too. If you reject God's son, that's your fate. No rest day or night. Okay. Adam, would you read verse 13? <laughs> then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who died in the Lord from now on. Blessed is the Greek word makarios, it means happy. You say, well, how can anybody be happy if they're dying? Well, if you're saved, that's the best thing that can happen to you. <laughs> Now, how many times, and I've made mention of this, and some of y'all picked on to, have, have hopped on this train. How many of you, somebody asks you, how are you doing? And you say, well, I'm doing all right. I'm not feeling good. I'm, I'm kind of tired. 
But we'll say, but it beats the alternative. We've said that. How, how many of you have said that? Be honest. Well, the truth is, if you're saved, it doesn't beat the alternative. It really doesn't. Because your best day here far pales in comparison to your first day in eternity if you're saved. Now, if you're not saved, this is as good as it'll ever get. Isn't that a depressing thought? That if you're not saved, this is as good as it ever gets. But if you're saved, this is as good as it ever gets. The Apostle Paul says, For me to live is Christ, Philippians 1.21, and to die is gain. By the way, you can do a little litmus test here. You take out the word Christ and gain, and you put something else in there. For me to live is money, and to die is emptiness. For me to live is fame, and to die is nothingness. Okay? But if you die with Christ, you, can, you have something to gain. He, he says in Philippians 1.23, Paul says, I'm in a pickle. I'm in a strait, King James says, between two alternatives. He said, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. So if you die as a Christian, don't say that your life here beats the alternative. Because whatever heaven is, and I'm sure, I'm sure we have no idea how wonderful it is. I mean, think about all of your wildest dreams coming true all at one time. Sanctified dreams, by the way. But imagine all of them coming true. And it pales in comparison. The Bible says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart. The thing that God has prepared for those that love Him. God has a glorious, beautiful, happy, happy future. You know, we sing that a lot, and I don't think we mean it. We'll be happy over there. You're thinking, I can't wait to get out of here and go to the Golden Corral, right? Because you don't really understand. You don't understand what awaits you. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Oh my, I can't camp out. We've got we to gotta move on. Okay. Revelation 14. Adam, would you read verses 14 uh, through 16? Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, <clears throat> cloud on, and on the cloud sat one like the son of man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your, sick, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come, and for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. All right, thank you. So the son of man here. Well, this comes right out of Daniel. Daniel 7, 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like unto the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and they brought him near before him. Now, go with me to Mark 14. I've got part of it here on the screen, but I want you to understand how important this title, Son of Man, is. And it, and it comes right out, out, out of Daniel. And this is a messianic uh, designation, if you will. Mark 14. Uh, Adam, would you read 60 through 63? 
pray stood up in the mist and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it that men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am, and you will see that the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of this witness? So the high priest understood exactly what Jesus was saying, didn't he? He was quoting Daniel, uh, saying that he was the Son of God. And he understood exactly what that title meant. Now, we'll go back to Revelation 14 now. This sickle, he's got a sharp sickle. And a lot of people preach this, that this is a harvest of souls. But that's not what's going on here. If you'll notice, stay with me just a few more minutes. If you'll notice, um, it says, thrust in your sickle, verse 15, and reap. For the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest... The harvest of the earth is ripe. Okay? Now, <clears throat> I appreciate those of you who brought me some tomatoes this year, this summer. I pray God will give you a special blessing. May you reward in heaven. Because <laughs> uh, there's nothing like a ripe tomato on a, on a summer day with Duke's mayonnaise and plenty of salt and pepper. Right? Amen? Amen. And some bacon too, right? <laughs> I didn't get to be a fat preacher by accident. Uh, <clears throat> this is not talking about a ripe tomato, a high acid tomato, as we might call it. This word ripe is the Greek word zyrano. And most of the time it's translated as withered away. Uh, in Revelation 16, 12, it speaks of the Euphrates River being dried up. Okay? So this is not the kind of harvest that you want to eat. This is kind of like the corn that's been looking here lately. You notice as you ride by? The corn's looking all burnt up and everything. This is what the earth is. It's worthless. And now God has come to judge it. And this is uh, Matthew 13. This is the wheat and the tares. It's exactly what this is. Gather first the tares, he says in Matthew 13, 30. Bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. All right, final segment here. Revelation 14. Adam, would you read 17 through 20? Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth. For her grapes are full of ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs. Which is about 200 miles for those of you who don't measure in furlongs, like me, or stadia, or however it's pronounced there. All right. Few things. This angel has power of fire. Fire is associated with the altar of incense, which is connected with prayer. So I think what the Holy Spirit is trying to help us connect the dots is that the things that are happening on the earth are in response to a prayer, the prayer of the martyrs for sure, but another prayer that the church has been praying for almost two thousand years now. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy 
kingdom come. Thy will be done where? On the earth as it is in heaven. And I believe that God's answering this prayer in a dramatic fashion. Now these grapes are said to be fully ripe. Different Greek word. Not Zyrano, but Agamazo. And I've got one time here. That's a Hapax Legomenon. That's a word that occurs only one time in a given uh, corpus or a, a body of work. So this word is only used here. And it speaks of the... It, think about the juices of the grape ready to burst open. Okay? Except here, he's not talking about grapes. He's talking about blood. The blood of his enemies. Now this vintage harvest is poured into the great wine press of the wrath the thumas of God. How many of you have, been, have ever seen people treading, treading grapes in a wine press? Maybe not personally, but you've seen the imagery of it, right? They've got these basins, and the people are stomping the grapes with their feet. I love Lucy. I love Lucy. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. It's probably on YouTube, right? So anyway, the picture here is stomping the grapes, okay? God is stomping his enemies. This is the wine press of the wrath of who? God. God is, tw is treading the wine press. I almost did an Elmer Fudd, treading the wine press. All right, time to wrap it up, right? Elmer Fudd. And the blood is going everywhere. That's the imagery. God's wine press of the wrath of God and his feet are trampling his enemies. Now... It says that the horse, the blood is to the horse's bridle. Some say, well, could this be possible? Well, you think about all the billions of people on the planet. In the valley of Jezreel, and I think it's entirely possible that this could happen. This is a, a, a fulfillment of Joel 3, 13. Put in the sickle, Joel says. Put ye in the sickle. The harvest is what? Ripe. Get down. For the press is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. This is a harvest of judgment. It's not a harvest of, uh, of revival. So what's the implication for us? I'm going to ask you this in closing. What kind of song are you going to sing? I think the 144,000 are something we should all aspire to be like. Right? You say, well, I'm married. I couldn't be like them. Well, the Bible says that marriage is honorable in all. There's nothing wrong with marriage. Don't, don't get that idea here. They, they're celibate because of the specific ministry that they have. But nevertheless, we should all be sexually pure, right? We live in a world, and think about this too. We live in a world where marriage means nothing and sexual uh, morality means nothing. And the church is still here. Imagine when the church is gone. Marriage is probably going to be... A, a, a foregone, it's, it's going to be gone. It's sad. Or, or completely redefined, as they're trying to do now, right? Yeah. People are marrying their cats and stuff now. I saw somebody married themselves the other day. Oh, <clears throat> you know? Uh, and that's just crazy. But think about when the church is gone, standards of morality will be zero, sub zero. And these guys are going to be pictures of sexual purity, and that's what we need to be. That's why we have to be sexually pure in all, in all of our doings. Uh, are you going to be an earth dweller? You, know? you may not take the mark of the beast, but guess what? If you choose not to receive Jesus Christ, you're making a choice for Satan. You're pledging your allegiance to the beast before he gets here, or to the dragon, rather. Let me ask you this.
And this is something you need to think about before we take communion. When was the last time you just thanked God? If for no other reason that you don't have to go to hell. You say, and I hear a lot of people say, well, I, you know, that's not, that's not why I love God. Well, that's not the only reason I love God. But hey, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm thankful I don't have to go to hell. I'm thankful that I don't. When was the last time you simply said, I love you? Preacher Arnold was preaching the other night, uh, a couple Wednesday nights ago. And, he, and, he, uh, and the Lord confirmed something to me um, in this message. And you, and you brought it out about just telling the Lord that you love Him. I believe that God wants us to communicate with Him. Any relationship requires communication. Any good one requires communication. You know, if you, you can't expect your, your spouse uh, to have a great relationship with you if you never tell them that you love them. Or you never tell them that you care about them. When was the last time you said, God, I love you? I love you, Lord. You know, I don't, I don't know. Is Brother Harold Vance here today? I don't know if he's here or not. But uh, I, I love to hear Brother Harold pray. You know what? First thing he says when he prays is, I love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. When was the last time you just said, God, I love you? I just, I, I dearly love you. I thank you. I don't want a thing from you. I, I didn't come here to ask anything from you. I just came here to tell you I love you and to praise you. God wants to hear that. God wants time with you. He wants time with you. God's already demonstrated His love to you. If He never tells you again, but if you'll get in the Word, you'll see where He's telling you over and over and over and over. God demonstrated His love. He didn't just tell you He loved you. He demonstrated His love for you in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Would you stand? We're going to receive the communion and observe the Lord's table here in just a moment. You may be here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus at all. The good news of the gospel is you can start today, right now, right this minute, in a moment of time. You place your faith and your trust in the risen Savior. He died on the cross for your sins. He was buried in the tomb. He rose again the third day. He's coming again. And you just simply say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I read in the Bible where God answered that prayer. Just a simple prayer. The man just simply smote his breast. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. He just said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man went home justified. You don't have to pray some big flowery words. Just say, God save my soul. Send the Holy Spirit to live in me. Believer, I want to speak to you before we take the Lord's Supper. Is there anything in your heart that shouldn't be there? Is there any sin that's unconfessed that you know of? There's things I'm sure that we're all not aware of. Sins of omission, things that we left undone, right? Is there something in your heart that you